A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So before we get into the show, I want to tell you about a special offer Canada Land has for you. For $3, we'll give you three months worth of ad-free content from across the Canada Land network. That's just $1 a month instead of the usual $9 a month. Now, we only do one sale a year, and we've never done one like this. We've asked listeners why they choose to support us or not to support us, and what we've discovered is that for a lot of listeners, it's not that they don't value Canadaland shows, it's not that they don't want to support independent journalism, it's that they've never paid for podcasts before. It's just a new thing that people have never done. But for Canadaland, listener support is crucial. So that's why we're offering the special deal to try to make it as easy as possible for you to take that leap and try something you may have never done before. For this deal, that's $1 a month for three months, you'll get our very best subscription package, premium feeds for every show we release and every show we have released. You can absolutely cancel this and you'll still have given us a little tip. So thank you for that. Keep listening to the free feed, no problem. Canceling is as easy as signing up. But we're confident that once you've become a supporter, you'll like the experience and you'll like the bonus content and you'll know how it feels to fuel independent media in Canada. We want to prove to you that we're worth sticking with and supporting for a long, long time. This is new. It's an experiment and Canada Land won't be offering it for too long. So head to canadaland.com slash join to take advantage of this limited time offer. Thanks so much. Now on to the show. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics that's celebrating its first birthday this week. Seriously, how has the time flown? We launched our very first episode on May 4th, 2021, covered an election, got to the top of the charts for a bit, went weekly, 
And all because we really, really, really wanted to have better, in-depth, complicated, fun, political conversations with our very smart and hilarious friends across the country. So let's have another one of those. Today is a landmark day because uh, we will be fulfilling our obligations under the Emergencies Act to commence this public inquiry. The government is launching a mandatory inquiry into the use of the Emergency Act during the Freedom Convoy. What does that mean? And there are shakeups at the top ranks of the Canadian military at the same time as a scathing 100-page report on racism and bigotry from the Canadian Armed Forces was released. The defense team needs the fresh and innovative ideas to build a solid foundation for the military of tomorrow. Racism exists. Discrimination exists. We'll make sense of that. I should note we're recording this on Friday since Monday is Eid and your girl will be eating in the daytime for the first time in a month. So if anything happens with that rolling thunder motorcycle rally in Ottawa this weekend, you'll have to wait to hear about it from us. Joining me this week from the heart of that biker rally, Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief of The Hub. Hey, I'm actually in the far-flung suburb, so I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> from Montreal, Emily Nicola, columnist at The Gazette, Le Devoir and CBC, and Canada Land's French language correspondent who was on the backbench's very first show ever. Wow, that's a long introduction. Thank you, Fatima. <laughs> and also from Ottawa, celebrating a triumphant return to freelancing and making a debut appearance on the backbench, the Paul Wells. Hey, am I getting paid? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. The government is holding an inquiry into its historic use of the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy. That was the very first time the act was ever used, allowing the government to help clear protesters from downtown Ottawa and freeze their bank accounts. Now, after the act is invoked, the government is legally required to call for an inquiry and set up a committee to review the decision within 60 days. That's two means of accountability. Justin Trudeau called for the inquiry last week on the 60th day. <laughs> Paul Rulau, a judge on the Ontario Court of Appeal, will be the inquiry's commissioner. His job is to, and I'm quoting now, look into the circumstances that led to the Emergencies Act being invoked and make recommendations to prevent these events from happening again. So he has the big task of scrutinizing everything about the situation, the impact on the economy, the funding of the convoy, the police response, and what the government did. Now, already the inquiry is... Well, drama-filled, ministers have invoked cabinet confidentiality at the committee hearing. They're arguing the information around the decision is privileged and can't be made public. Now, Paul, I want to start with a politics for dummies question here. What are government inquiries for and have they ever done something good for us? Yeah, all the time. There's various venues, including something called the Inquiries Act, uh, which allow governments to name specialists in a subject matter, like a scientific question, or known and eminent impartial figures like a judge, and give them a task. Find out why this happened. Um, there was a riot in Halifax at the end of the Second World War when the fleets came into port and the war was over and there was a lot to celebrate and a few people died and there was massive property damage. So the government of the day appointed a commission of inquiry, a one-man commission of inquiry, to find out why things had gone so horribly wrong. And um, when Igor Gazenko defected from the Soviet Union at the end of the Second World War, there was a commission of inquiry into 
how the hell was there a nest of spies in downtown Ottawa? And uh, that commission actually met in secret. It wasn't announced until it was nearly done its investigation. And there's been a million since then. They're actually pretty good at getting to the bottom of complicated stories. They have often subpoena power so they can force testimony. They have time and budgets to really concentrate on something. They're a tool that governments are reluctant to use because you're never sure what answers they're going to come up with. But sometimes they're either required by law, as in this case, or the Pandora's box that you open by answering the questions is better than the Pandora's box you've got by refusing to look into these questions. So that begs the follow-up question, is this inquiry set up for success? Like, what's the scope? Stuart, I wonder if you could start us off. <laughs> well, if you read the order in council, it does seem like Justin Trudeau is really excited to find out who had Nazi flags on Parliament Hill um, when the protest was here. But I, like, as Paul has already written, that's probably not that big of a deal. I mean, this can go in whatever direction it goes. And probably the bigger impediment on it is the time. I think it's the end of February that we're, we're looking at here. So that's tough. It's tough to do a real investigation in that time. And then, you know, one thing that I have been thinking about is what would it look like for me to be surprised by this or for me to have my opinion changed on this? And I think that, you know, as a matter of political judgment that Canadians will be making on this, I think we pretty much know what we need to know. You know, if you think that it was um, an overstep to do this, you're probably not going to change your mind. Um, I think probably what the bulk of Canadians felt like was there was a big problem. The government did this and then it went away. I think there were a lot of other factors in that, but I think that's fundamentally where most people are going to come down. Um, Emily, we're already seeing criticism of the inquiry, like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is saying that it's focusing on the protesters and diverting attention from the government's actions. Do they have a point? I think uh, as a citizen, they have a point. Obviously, the government is going to try to set up the inquiry in a way that doesn't necessarily look at them and look at what other players were up to. I also think that one part that's missing from our conversation on the use of the Emergency Measures Act is, is the piece about the police. That's the big part that led to, you know, the narrative around that act being involved, being necessary, is how people were flaggergasted at the way uh, Ottawa police specifically and then other police services, uh, OPP also, were reacting to the protests. And so if we're not going to look into this piece, and only look at, you know, individual protesters or, you know, the government itself, but we're, we're taking the police out of the conversation. I'm also not sure, you know, how much we're going to find out from this inquiry, the way it's set up right now. Yeah, I mean, Paul, based on sort of the description you gave us at the start, this is a massive scope that this inquiry has to go through. There are so many elements to the Freedom Convoy that the government um, had, a, you know, a hand in or was monitoring and acted upon and or didn't act upon. Um, so what are the outcomes that we might see from an investigation like this one? Well, the scope may be a problem. Judge Rulo has a, a reporting deadline of February of next year. And a lawyer that I spoke to this week says it's hard to imagine that he's going to meet that deadline. You can ask for a extension and then the government can decide whether to give one um, because it's, it's reasonable to think that Justice Rulo would need to talk to the mayor of Ottawa, half the federal cabinet, a good chunk of the Ontario cabinet, mm -hmm. chiefs of police from several jurisdictions, advocates for some of the activists, and so on and so on. So, I mean, the scale of the mandate is such that 
it'll be interesting to see whether he can get it done in a year. However he goes about his work, there will certainly be people who say he's spending way too much time trying to essentially try the truckers in the court of public opinion. And there will certainly be people who say, why is he being so mean to the government? All they were trying to do was defend Ottawa. I mean, so off the top of my head, those are two sets of likely problems. Honestly, it sounds like a dumpster fire just waiting. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It just sounds like there's no good ending to this inquiry. There is a committee going on right now that I take a special interest in into the astonishing mass murder in uh, Nova Scotia in the spring of 2020. And I unfortunately haven't been able to follow it closely, but the, the, the reporters I trust who are following it describe it every day basically as a dumpster fire. Uh, it's a very, very problematic commission. And this thing's going to get 20 times the coverage that that one is getting. Mm-hmm. When I think about the Emergencies Act and how it was used, it seems to me like a massive overstep, except when I kind of put myself back in that place where we were all just kind of walking around stunned. Like the police didn't seem to know what to do. Our police chief um, was, you know, crying out for help. He eventually resigned. It was a very weird moment in Canadian history. And it's hard to remember that was the atmosphere and that the Emergencies Act almost, I I say almost because there were other factors, but it almost served as like a psychological, like shock therapy to get the police moving. They also, they got a new chief. They got many, many, many more officers coming into the city to help them. So there were other parts there. But when you think about the failures here, that must be the biggest one. And probably the more interesting report that we're going to get on this is the city auditor in Ottawa looking into the actions of the Ottawa police and what was actually going on there and, you know, what was causing that kind of paralysis. So I think we may have uh, like dueling dumpster fires here. Well, I, I don't know if that second one's going to be a dumpster fire, maybe in the format, but not in the content. It seems to be as uh, kind of like you were saying that it's only because that first mess was going on that the conversation about emergency acts even happened. Mm-hmm. And then there's a second set of, of questions that is about the Emergency Measures Act itself and how it's written up. And I remember before now, it's, you know, it's going to be a dumpster fire. But even when it was just rumored or thrown out there that it might be invoked, you had some really interesting lawyers debating, yes, it's going to be a stretch if they invoke it. But I know if it's because it's ethically wrong or just because the law is not written for the purpose that it needs to serve. And if we're also not going to have this conversation because it's going to be about either the protesters or the government just pointing uh, fingers at each other, we're also not going to go anywhere. But yeah, no, I feel like if we wouldn't be there, if if it wasn't for police not being able to actually police uh, people who are on the right instead of, you know, poor people and, uh, you know, indigenous people and black people. And if we're not going to have the conversation, I don't know which conversation we're going to have. You know, my understanding is the inquiry and the special committee are both accountability mechanisms mm-hmm. that are, you know, codified in the legislation uh, about this last resort mechanism that the government has available to them. But I also understand that we can only get accountability if all the parties are transparent <laughs> and willing to open their books and, and show what's happening. And also, if the powers to be that are running the investigation are going to be hard in the questions they ask, right, and, and, and in their findings. So I guess, what will accountability look like here? Like, are we expecting people to get fired or just to learn the truth? Well, Peter slowly fired himself. He resigned. <laughs> yes. That, that was the first person. I don't know who else could lose their, their their position on this, but I think, yeah. Even an imperfect inquiry is sometimes better than no inquiry. The Gomery inquiry, which I thought was essentially 
an attempt by one faction in the Liberal Party to embarrass another faction, and it turned out to embarrass them all. And it did systematically reveal patterns of criminal behavior in the Liberal Party of Canada that uh, led to massive reform, even though there were obvious attempts to stonewall its work. We, I don't think Gomery found out everything that was happening at the time, but it found out more than would have happened or would have been found out. And similarly, the, uh, this is a, a different mechanism, but when the ethics commissioner looked into the SNC-Lavalin uh, mess, I think nine people that he wanted to talk to were not permitted to talk to him because of claims of cabinet confidentiality that he disputed. Mm-hmm. Basically, all of the interesting people in this affair weren't allowed to speak to the ethics commissioner, but the ethics commissioner was still able to ascertain enough to find the prime minister guilty of, of a breach of the law. The main question here is, look, it was a horrible mess in Ottawa and in other parts of the country uh, at, the, at the beginning of this year. Was it a mess that required the most sweeping expansion of police prerogative in 50 years? And I think we're going to get not a final answer to that, but a, a more informed answer to that than we do now. Justin Trudeau's government can't stop that answer from coming. Yeah, I guess the most likely scenario is the report ends up, you know, doing some recommendations and having all sorts of nuances in there. And if that's the case, then the people who are thinking that Justin Trudeau is a dictator will, you know, hold on to the to the recommendations in there in there that say he that he overreached um, to prove their point. And those who say, well, you know, the the, the protesters were not necessarily unforeseen at all, but unhandled historically by police. And so therefore, something more needed to be done and they will hold on to their argument. So I don't know how we're going to learn anything that's going to make people feel differently about this issue from where they already stood. Yeah, I'm just tired of getting reports, you guys. I just want to <laughs> see action. <laughs> Fasim, I don't know if you were like politically aware in the Harper years. Um, But it just felt like the atmosphere from the left was that every inquiry, every report was going to bring down the Harper government. And Mm. these things just don't, they just don't happen that way. Like it's even Gomery, which was like sensational. And, you know, Sheila Fraser, those were like big political moments. Paul Martin still won a minority government after that. And it took time. Like it was this kind of slow effect um, that kind of infiltrated the political system. And I think maybe the best thing we can hope for from this is if there were mistakes made, like if there were actually kind of objective, fundamental mistakes made, it's more something that um, comes out the next time something like this happens. Like it may make it um, less likely some government does this in the future. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Stuart? I don't know if anyone is following this whole Ron DeSantis versus Disney scandal in the U.S. 
It's pretty great. If you're not, I highly recommend getting into that. But we had kind of our own version of that, the Steam Whistle versus Pierre Polyev um, <laughs> scandal, which is like the CanCon version. It's not as good. It's not as interesting. But it's like got an element of that. So Steam Whistle was hosting an event by Pierre Polyev, and then seven or eight people on Twitter got mad about that. So Steam Whistle panicked, and they started handing out flyers to reporters saying, hey, we don't agree with Pierre Polyev, we're just hosting him here. And it sort of became this little mini scandal in the conservative leadership race. This is like corporations jumping into politics in a way that they never used to. Um, I don't think that they're very good at it. I think it comes off hokey, but also they're not really good at fighting in the political arena, which is filled with bad faith and things they're not used to uh, in these board meetings. So something to keep an eye on. I think it's really fun. It's maybe something we could talk about for a whole segment someday. Not a point of order, but corporations vote too, Stuart. Let them speak their mind. <laughs> yeah, they are people too. <laughs> when I speak here, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Emily? My point of order is that uh, shit's about to hit the fan again in terms of identity politics, and we're not necessarily even noticing, and I'm already tired in advance. So Bill 96, like this bill about French language in Quebec is, is being debated right now. So there's already a lot of heat on language. And as this, that is happening, census is starting to get its data public. And obviously, there's always a lot of data in there about, you know, French language, who speaks it at home, who has it as a mother tongue, who has it as a, as a language spoken at work and all of that. And there's always, every time census data comes out, just shitstorm of people having so many feelings about the French language. And I'm not saying that's not important. I'm just saying that I know it's not going to be done in a way that's healthy because it never is. So I'd like to, I don't know if the point of order is a warning that could we just have those conversations in a way that's actually mature? That'd be great. Um, not a point of order, but maybe I should buy you an umbrella and uh, <laughs> a, a spa booking and make a spa booking for you. <laughs> Thank you. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Paul? I'm really interested in this guy, Scott Aitchison, uh, who's running for the conservative leadership. He's, he's been a conservative MP since 2019. Essentially, no one's ever paid any attention to him. And he's interesting because he presents as one of these people who runs as a Trump candidate for Congress in the States and, and like rough and tough and never wears a jacket and tie and, and, and kind of a small town, rough hewn, plain speaking guy who in the States, you could imagine that his campaign ads would be him mowing down rows of tin cans with his with his automatic <laughs> rifle. Uh, but the thing about Scott Aitchison is he's actually a red Tory. Uh, I asked him who he admires, and he said Brian Mulroney, which there's still parts of the country where that's just a radioactive answer. So who he looks like and what his politics actually are. I mean, if Jean Charest turned into a real lost cause, I can imagine some of Charest's support going to the Scott Aitchison, who's a essentially a new generation progressive conservative. Or I could just imagine mm. people finding that a boring, useless thing to be and, that, and, he, and he goes nowhere. Uh, so <laughs> the, forks of, the, the, the forks of possibility are pretty broad for this guy. Not a point of order, but thank you for bringing Scott Aitchison wholesome vibes on the backbench for a second <laughs> consecutive episode. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> He's every pundit's favorite. He's like the Mike Chong of 2022. So I can't believe it, but on our very first episode of The Backbench, we talked about the military because shit was happening in the military. And here we are again on our one-year birthday 
still talking about the military because there's still shit happening in the military. So there's been a shakeup in the upper ranks. You'll remember that there was a stream of allegations of sexual misconduct against senior members of the military. Several of them were removed, investigated, or forced to retire. Now they've announced new commanders of the Air Force, Army, and Navy. And they seem to be making a statement by appointing uh, Lieutenant General Jocelyn Paul as commander of the Canadian Army. He's a member of the Huron-Wendat First Nation and will be the first Indigenous person in this role. Just days after that announcement, Defense Minister Anita Anand released a report about racism and bigotry in the Canadian Armed Forces from the Advisory Panel on Systemic Racism and Discrimination. This report does not hold back. It says, quote, racism in Canada is not a glitch in the system. It is the system. And that, quote, recruitment, retention, and career progression are seriously hampered by systemic discrimination. The report offers 13 recommendations, including an overhaul of military policing, embracing trans soldiers, and rooting out violent extremists within the forces. The report says 258 recommendations have been made over the past 20 years, but that many of these recommendations were poorly implemented, shelved, or discarded. That's a quote. And here's an interesting line. If a recommendation is not to be pursued, the reasons for this should be endorsed by the Minister of National Defense. Should be, not must be. So, Emily, let's start there. What did you make of this report and the recommendations in it? Well, first of all, I find it really interesting that we're having a conversation about racism in the military as if it was breaking news. I know why that's the case. Um, but I just want to say as somebody who grew up like not too far from a military base where, I mean, it's just been no secret, the relationship between, you know, some people in the far right and some people hanging out in the military base. It's, it's in, in uh, the, I'm talking about the Bacatsi base in Quebec City, something that's been going on for years. Obviously not everybody in the, in the military is involved with that, but those connections have been something that people have been talking about for a really long time. And I guess my first reaction is, is about time. Mm-hmm. Now, my second reaction is that Whenever there's an issue with something that involves an ism, the liberal governments and just this administration's way to answer the issues by appointing people from that group in leadership position. So it led a couple of months ago to just having a panel of women answering to issues of sexism in the military and violence against women in the military. And then it's like the women who are apologizing on behalf of the military, right? So now you're appointing an indigenous person to uh, to this role. And I guess my question is, is that going to be the same thing that's going to be happening again? They're going to be appointing people of color to actually be in the super uncomfortable role when they're speaking on behalf of the military, apologizing most probably in the future to people of color who've been harmed by the military in the past. But it's it, it's just a, an optical thing where, of course, you cannot be against people being promoted. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if the answer is going to be mostly on optics like that, it's just also recreating this kind of super awkward from a political communication standpoint story where they're just you know, going to make the person that's actually the victim be the person who just holds the blame and has to clean up the mess. And it's, it's, um, it's really not a new, a new dynamic. And I have feelings about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So do I, Um, I guess my big question and, and Paul, I'm sorry to give you the impossible question, but is this an institution that can be fixed? We've been talking about the Mm. problems plaguing the military for years. 
I think it can, and I hope it can. I have spent a fair bit of time with soldiers over the years. I went uh, three trips to Afghanistan. I spent a week on a frigate in uh, the Arctic Ocean covering uh, Canadian Navy sovereignty exercises. I don't come from a military background. Uh, it would never have occurred to me to be in the armed forces. But uh, in, in almost any day-to-day -day interaction that you have with people in uniform in Canada, it's a tremendously impressive culture. There's a culture of honesty and directness and a, a mix of, of, of formality and informality and dedication to task. And it's in some ways a very rigorous meritocracy because people get promoted who have, you know, are, are better at protecting the lives of their colleagues than people who don't get promoted. And that's tested again and again and again in endless exercises and training and then in, in real world situations. And being around soldiers, I always find it just a fascinating experience. It's also true that just about anyone you ask in the armed forces says the sort of deep saturation of far right, including often very violent extremism, is um, what, what one person in the military said to me is an existential threat for the whole institution. Uh, that uh, casual sexism and racism is rife. And... When I think about the armed forces, I find myself holding these two apparently very contradictory notions in my head. I've been very critical of this Trudeau government in many ways, but their more serious and sustained attempt to fix the culture of the military, despite many, many setbacks, is uh, one of the things that I admire about this government. Stuart, do you agree? What's your assessment on the government's efforts to sort of address the military's um, issues of racism and, and so forth? Yeah, I think probably where I come down on this is that I am a big believer in leadership. And I think that is something, you know, if you talk to anybody in the military, leadership is what they, they really believe in it. It's a huge thing in the forces. And when we talk about the military, it does start with the government. See, I think even just highlighting the problem is part of that. And uh, one thing that you notice when you start reading the interactions that were happening during these harassment allegations, there was this real knee-jerk cover-up instinct. And, you know, that's almost the opposite of leadership. The thing that you have to do when you see a problem is that you have to address it. And if there's kind of this um, ambient sense that your superiors are going to look the other way on certain infractions that is really corrosive to the culture. So you can imagine people getting the sense that what the superiors see is minor harassment, they're going to look the other way. So that just permeates. And then on the far right stuff, the idea is keep it low key, don't advertise it, don't show up anywhere in your uniform that might embarrass us. But you know, we're not going to do an investigation. We're not going to be looking for people. I think that really is the key is if you have leaders who are sort of setting a standard, things start to change. And one thing is clear, we have not had leaders in the military that can do that. Maybe we've had a few here and there, but there hasn't been a culture of leadership. And, you know, I kind of I've heard the phrase toxic masculinity thrown around a lot um, with this. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it, which is if you look at the way people on the left talk about this, this is almost the fundamental difference between people on the left and people on the right is that there's this idea about human nature. They're just different ideas. One is that our human nature is, you know, malleable. We can change it for the better. Um, and if you're on the right, you kind of think we're fallen. We have problems with our human nature and society's job is to sort of restrain that. So 
the left's idea of toxic masculinity is that we should just cut it out and get rid of it entirely and have good masculinity. The right's idea is that we have um, masculinity, full stop. It includes good things and bad things. And our job as a society is to sort of push aside and restrain the bad parts. Um, whatever way you fall down, like if you're a conservative looking at this or a liberal, the military has failed in both uh, senses of the word there. So I think that the way that they have framed how they're looking for leaders now, where they're looking at character, they're looking to be more representative. I think that's all great. But this is a multi-year, possibly multi-decade project. Emily, I want to let your feelings have a moment. Um, but, you know, what struck me about this report particularly is it actually urges the military to get uncomfortable. Like it uses the word uncomfortable several times. And it says so in no uncertain words that, you know, the actions that need to be taken to correct course will mean that some defense members will leave, and that's fine, that some members of the defense will fight those changes, and that needs to be dealt with, that some members will, and I'm quoting, shut up and put up. So the people that will not agree with the changes and will resist silently, and that some people will try to adapt to this new environment. And the military has to deal with all of those people if the goal, first and foremost, is to become an institution that is relevant and that is, um, you know, suited for the times that we are in. Emily, what did you make of that? It's so interesting because that's like, I guess, the passage that I had right in front of me and I was planning <laughs> to bring it up next um, because I find it I find it fascinating that there is this language in there. And maybe maybe the reason I have so many feelings about this is because I've been there and it kind of like makes me um, feel it's actually a really good thing that, that the language in there is so clear, especially about some people will lead, some people will fight uh, the changes, but especially the people who will try to just silently just put up with it and just like silently resist that is most probably like the worst part of trying to create any organizational change when you try to put in those mandatory workshops about edi just the people who are if it's a zoom call just going to like shut their camera and just ask no question and just wait for their time to to end and just like have you know have the check that they've done the training that's the hr nightmare and there's probably going to be a, a a lot of it i don't know if it changes anything the fact that they're acknowledging it but that at the very least the fact that there is some language in there about the fact this is a very likely reaction, especially in a culture where upfront criticism is not gonna, something that's going to be encouraged. So if you disagree with your superiors, that's the way you're going to do it in the military. Now that you've said it, I don't know if it solves the issue, but I just I just find it really interesting that they're mm -hmm. putting it in there. And I feel like that's not necessarily even a conversation about the military anymore. Like every report about like, oh, we just found that there is systemic racism in our organization should include some language like that and a plan to deal with like like all of those four possible groups, you know, people will leave, people will fight, people will just try to cruise over the change and then people who will actually try to adapt and trying to find out like how, what the, the proportion of people who, for, who fall in one of those four groups is a really good methodology I find for trying to foster cultural change. You know, the military has been in the news like almost every day lately because of what's happening in, in Ukraine and, and because of all the sort of changes that are happening within the institution. One thing I've, I struggle to understand, and, and Paul, maybe I can get your thoughts on this, is what is a Canadian military? And what do we want that institution to be for Canadians? Well, um, 
historically, whenever governments try and grapple with that through formal defense reviews of the kind that this government has announced yet again for the Canadian forces, what comes out the other end is sort of everything. You need to defend Canadian sovereignty. You need to be able to uphold democratic norms around the world and global security by putting soldiers on the line in places like the NATO frontier and um, uh, until recently in Ukraine. You need to uh, do search and rescue. You need to do disaster relief. Um, the Canadian forces come in awfully handy a lot. Uh, one recent case was in Ontario and Quebec where uh, long-term care homes were death traps for way too many older Canadians. And it was Canadian forces soldiers who uh, went into those situations, observed them with outside eyes, reported the scale of the, of the pro problem, and provided some first steps towards resolving some of these issues. Nobody ever designed the Canadian forces for that. It turned out that the Canadian forces were critical to uh, shining a light on that serious problem and beginning to fix it. So I get my back up at anyone who would suggest that we don't need an army. I was really proud to be able to point out the role that the Canadian uh, army played in training up Ukrainian troops to a level where they're just objectively much better at defending Ukraine than the Russians are at attacking it. That work, which began eight years ago, is more crucial to Canada's effort to help Ukraine than anything that Canada has done since February. But when problems are as rampant and disgusting as a lot of what we're hearing about with regard to treatment of diversity and the role of women uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces. It sort of doesn't matter if they happen to be useful in other ways. You really do have to uh, focus hard and over an extended period of time in making it very clear that as high up the chain of command as you, as you can imagine going, these sorts of behaviors are unacceptable. And you just have to keep saying it until people, some people begin to take it into their heads. Stuart, final thoughts? Can I, I'm going to take a swing at that question you just asked, Paul, because I love it. It's also interesting to ask people in the military that question, because I'm not sure that they know what is the, you know, what is their reason for being? What are we good at? When you go around the world, what is Canada's thing? And one of the reasons I know this is that we were talking about, you know, the reaching the NATO targets on defense spending, which is a lot of money. It's just a ton, billions and billions of dollars. And if you go around to people in the military and you say, what would you spend that on? Give all this extra money. What would you get? Like, would it be tanks or ships or whatever? Um, it's kind of hard to get like a straight answer. There's a lot of like, well, we have to reprofile and think long-term implications. And as a reporter, you're just, you want someone to say tanks so you can put it in the story. Um, but I was really surprised at how hard it was for them to say, this is what we should do. Like that could be a confidence problem. It's a culture problem. It's just maybe that we've kind of lost our way in those terms. So I, I think that's something that maybe we should be considering as a country is what do we want our military to be? What do we want it to be good at? And, you know, 10, 20, 50 years down the road, what do we expect from them? And how do they treat their own, all of their own yeah. and yeah. Canadians? And others as well. I'm sorry, sorry to, to say, but first of all, two things were being critical now of sexism and racism in the military, but there was never, and I don't think anyone said that here, but I just want to take the time to say there was never a golden age where that was not a problem, mm -hmm. right? That's like a core part of military culture ever since the military existed. So when, when you think about 
trying to foster change with that. We need to know that that's an issue that's foundational to military culture, just like any a lot of other things are, but this is foundational to military culture. And the second thing I think it's important to flag when we're having those conversations is that as we're having those conversations, we're only thinking about them as people who are part of the military, how they treat each other, but that there's real implication for people in the countries in which the military is sent as well. And there's been a lot of people, if there's sexism and racism in the military, that sexism and that racism is, is necessarily shows in the way that uh, people interact with locals as well, wherever they go. And I feel like that's probably the part in, of this conversation that's the most missing because who goes and asks back in Haiti and in, you know, wherever in Afghanistan, wherever the, the, the Canadian army has been in recent years, if that racism and sexism has actually, you know, impacted the relationship they've, they've built or not built with, with locals. And if there were any human rights abuse there, if they were within the military with Canadian citizens, mm-hmm. how do you think that went down with people who are not citizens, who will not have, you know, access to justice uh, within this country, who have no idea where to begin, to don't even necessarily speak the same language? So I think we need to uh, not also in, in, invisibilize the people who might have been affected by those issues as well uh, abroad. Okay, I'm all out of questions. Do you guys have any anything more you'd like to say? I was going to make a Scott Ageson joke, but maybe not the right time. <laughs> Okay, on that note, let's adjourn. That was the backbench. I seriously still cannot believe we've been on the air for a year. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us for your rants, your questions, your concerns, and for just giving us so many ideas for more conversations. The show can only exist because of our listeners, and we're so grateful you have us part of your weekly lives. Uh, Stay tuned for even more fun, in-depth, nuanced political conversations. We're so excited for what's in store, and we hope you'll stick around. Thank you all for being part of our very first birthday episode. Um, Where can people follow all of you for your smarts and amazing analysis? Stuart? Uh, go to thehub.ca or Twitter is Stuart X Thompson. Emily? Uh, Le Devoir, the Montreal Gazette, and Twitter. And uh, Paul, I hope you'll come back. And we know you're not on Twitter, so where do people follow you? Oh, uh, I, I, I'd love to come back. I'm at paulwells.substack.com. For the month of May, I'm not even charging. That could be one of your taglines. could be like, I was not on Twitter before Elon Musk bought it. Like, yeah. it's like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please keep emailing us, backbench at canaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed, and you can find my work on the Narwhal. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. The music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks so much for listening. Please have cake for the Backbench's first birthday and send us pics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.